What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, a couple of questions. One, how's your health? Well, uh, funny you should ask. Because, uh, yeah, you, I know you're a person who takes health issues very seriously, and um, I, I'm, I'm going to give you an exclusive. Okay. Because, because Gary Kerfers told me a long time ago that I should pay attention to Bob Lettsetz, <laughs> and um, I think that was even back when you were on the Velvet Rope in those days. Okay. But... Uh, over the Memorial Day weekend, I had a heart attack. I was, um, I had been feeling this. The, the impression I had was that I had really bad heartburn for a lot, and it was coming and going for a couple of days. Like it started on a Wednesday night, and then Thursday it was coming and going. And so I said, This is really uncomfortable. I'm going to call the doctor. And I set up an appointment for Friday morning. Very good doctor said, this has all the earmarks of um, an ulcer, but you don't seem like the ulcer type. So let me real quick take a blood test. We'll rush it and we'll see what's really going on. So two hours, he said, you go home, lie down, I'll call you. Two hours later, he called me, he said, Chris, you got to call 911, get yourself to the hospital. <laughs> It seems like you might be having a heart attack. I thought, oh wow, because my father—I'm—I'm I'm 69. My father died of a heart attack at age 67. So I, I thought, oh, I—I I beat it. But no. <laughs> anyway, I went to Bridge—you know Fairfield. I went to Bridgeport yeah, exactly. Hospital. Right. Went to Bri Bridgeport Hospital. They were the cardi cardiology team was waiting. They tested me for COVID-19 to make sure I didn't have that. And then they wheeled me right into a 
uh, it's not a surgery room. It was like one of these micro uh, surgical things where they go in through your wrist and look at everything on video monitors. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. That's the way they do it now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's just a little tiny dot on my wrist where they, they went in. And, so they, they found blockage in my lower coronary artery and um, they cleared it out and they put in three stents. And uh, three days later, I was home, resting up. But uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I feel good and um, very grateful to the good people at, at Bridgeport Hospital. So, what's the rehab? Well, uh, changing uh, to a more plant-based diet, for one thing. I was a guy who, I'm a bon vivant, you know. I, I, I like to, I love to eat. But I've lost 17 pounds since that happened, maybe 18. I didn't weigh myself yet today. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I was too heavy, it's true. And, and um, I, I probably liked meat uh, more often than I should have done. So anyway, I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to relax, you know. Let's face it, I've got it made. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't need to like sweat like new records or, or new anything like new tours. They're not happening anyway. So I'm going to relax and enjoy the fruits of my labors and my life. And I was sort of doing that already, but now I'm really going to do it. <laughs> now, since your father was 67 and he died yeah. of a heart attack, had you been tracking this closely? Probably not as closely as I should have. I, I was getting warnings, you know, from blood work and stuff. And I, but I don't really like that anti-cholesterol medicine, although I'm taking it now. Which but, one are um, you? Which one are you taking? Crestor. Right, I take that one. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the statins have their pros and cons, but uh, my cardiologist is a really good guy, and I'm going to just follow his, his advice and keep taking it until the numbers are such that I can consider uh, easing off. Are you taking the ubiquinol with it? I don't, I don't think so. No. Is that a supplement? Yeah. It's a supplement. It's supposed to speak to the side effects. It's C uh, it's not CO2, but without going to the other room and looking up, it's something like that. And yeah. uh, are you having any side effects from the uh, Crestor? Uh, not too bad. N Actually, none so far. Right. I mean, I know, I know the side effects can be, one, one is depression, another is memory loss. I really don't want that. <laughs> well, the number one, I, you know, I haven't had any issues with that, but with some of the statins, I have had the leg pains. You, know, you get uh -huh. the muscle tightness. Yes. Yes, I've, I've heard about that. I haven't had that. Thank goodness. But I didn't want to, you know, talk about health the whole time. But since you started off with that question, I thought I, I better. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets podcast. We started, as I say, we got an update on Chris's health. And he says that's fine for everybody to hear. So we're going to leave that in. In any event, my guest today is drummer 
for Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. He has a new book, Remain in Love. It's going to be in stores both in the UK and the US on July 21st. Please welcome Chris France. Chris? Okay. It's a great pleasure to be here, Bob. Okay. Now, Chris, why the book? Why now? Well, uh, I'd been meaning to write the book for many years, like a dozen years or so. And then a couple of years ago, I finally buckled down and said, you better do this, you know, because you're not getting any younger and um, nobody's writing any good books about talking heads. So, so I did it. I started about two years ago. And, um, you know, my, my, I feel like my story is uh, a, a delightful one. And I feel like I was very fortunate, and I feel like, well, I, I, I feel like it's a memorable tale to have been in Talking Heads, to have been in Tom Tom Club, and to be married uh, now for 43 years to Tina Weymouth. Look, I'm a lucky guy, you know? Okay, one thing anybody who reads the book will be stunned about is not only is it comprehensive in terms of the timeline, the detail is really incredible. Did you have any notes or did you just remember all that? You know, uh, most of it I remembered. Uh, but fortunately, you know, I, I, I've been kicking myself for a long time for not keeping a journal. I knew during that time that I should be keeping a journal and I just didn't. But Tina fortunately had these, not a journal, but date books, like, you know, like the um, calendar book, date books you buy at the Metropolitan Museum that has King Tut on the cover. Right. She had one of those and she, she would write down, last night we played the Roundhouse, sold out, three encores, got paid. It's <laughs> 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 uh, so, uh, so, and she... She also made notes of the hotels and things like that, like bed was terrible uh, or uh, shower was too small, uh, things like that. So, so I was able to, Tina, Tina loaned me her date books from those, those years. I guess it was like from, from 1977 to 1980. And uh, they, they came in very helpful because a lot of the information you get on the internet is a tissue of lies. Well, that begs a question. Once you wrote it, I'm sure you ran it by Tina. Did she remember things the same way you had? In most in instances, yes. Uh, although once in a while she would say, oh, no, no, it wasn't like that. And uh, she, ha she has a, a memory that's very keen, you know. Okay, let's go back to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. That's where you and Tina went to college. Uh, according to the book, David dropped out. Why go, yeah. to, RISD, why go to RISD to begin with? Well, I, I was uh, planning on having a, a life as a painter. And I had been in bands when I was young, a teenager. Um, and I, I loved being in bands. You know, I started off in elementary school, and uh, then the Beatles came out, and everybody had little rock and roll bands. And Okay, well, let's slow down a little bit there. So you were playing in bands before the Beatles? 
Yes, actually, I was I was playing in no, I was playing in my elementary school band before the Beatles. Okay, yeah. Let's let's cover something. So you're originally from where? Well, I'm originally from Kentucky, but during my formative years, we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where my father was from. And uh, he was going into a law practice, so he, we moved back to where he had some connections. And um, so, so elementary school, junior high, and part of high school, most of high school, I was in Pittsburgh. Okay, now Pittsburgh is very hip again. Yeah. Uh, what do I know about Pittsburgh? You know, there's the book, Michael Chabon, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, which I recommend. The darkest movie I've ever seen in a theater, Mrs. Soulful in Pittsburgh. But when you were growing up in Pittsburgh, was it a shithole or was it an unknown hip city? <laughs> um, well, I couldn't wait to get out of there, to be honest. Uh, I, I, I knew that, Pittsburgh was not going to be where I was going to make my mark because I wanted to be an artist. And I thought, God, Andy Warhol wanted to be an artist. He was from Pittsburgh, but he had to move to New York, you know. And uh, uh, don't get me wrong, I, I have a lot of good friends still in Pittsburgh and fond memories of the place. But I, I just knew as an artist, it, it wasn't happening for me. Okay, but... You had to get out of there. But you said, uh, so you went to prep school for part of your high school? Yeah, I went to a, a Shadyside Academy, which is a, a fine school in, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. And so you still lived at home at the same time or did you live there? I lived at home. I was a day student. And that's where I, I started painting. I had a, a great studio art teacher named David Miller. He went on to teach at Skidmore. But anyway, he um, he turned me on to contemporary art, which was something I didn't know anything about at the time. Like, he turned me on to Jasper Johns, Rauschenberg. I knew about Warhol. Uh, people like Ed Keenholz and uh, Klaus Oldenburg and, uh, of course, Willem de Kooning. You know, he, he turned me on to all these artists, and I thought, wow, this is what I want to do. And that's why I went to RISD. Okay. Uh, those are all, generally speaking, abstract painters. Prior to this teacher, Mr. Miller, did you have an interest in art? Were you? Did you draw? Did you paint? Anything like that? I, I did draw. I, uh, You know, I was born in Kentucky, and my have my whole mother's side of the family in Kentucky. So I, I used to draw horses and stuff like that. Or my grandfather, you know. And I would draw on those shirt cardboards that you used to get Absolutely. You know, when, you, when your shirts were laundried, laundered. I never really thought of myself as being a, an artist at all until I took that class called Studio Art in high school. And Okay. All of a sudden, I thought, this is what I want to do. Okay. So you said you were in the uh, elementary school band. Is that where you learned how to play, or did your parents give you lessons? Yeah. I started off on the trumpet, and it wasn't really happening for me. I was trying. I was practicing, but it, I wasn't getting anywhere. And, I, and uh, I had a very good teacher. His name was Gene Wilmoth. He was a mallet instrument guy. 
you know, marimba, vibraphone, right. xylophone, and also piano, and also drums. And he said, yeah, I can see it's not really working out for you, but you have a good sense of rhythm. What do you, what do you say we switch you over to drums? And I said, cool, let's do it. And he gave me the little rubber pad and the elementary book of rudiments and he gave me a couple lessons, a little private lessons, and next thing I knew, I was uh, first chair in the drum department. <laughs> now, in the school band, you're just playing the marching drum, whatever they call that, right? You're not playing a whole kit. Yeah, in the yeah, there was no drum kit. You in the in the fall and the spring, you would do marching, and so that would be a marching drum. In the the winter months. We would have orchestra, and I would I would hit a snare drum or a triangle <laughs> or a tambourine. One time, I played just the cymbal, just the ride cymbal. And so, what ha- what what happens when the Beatles arrive? So the Beatles came and just basically changed everything overnight uh, after their Ed Sullivan appearance and. Uh, I, I remember the day after that, the girls on the school bus were singing Beatles songs in unison, and they knew all the words and everything already. And I thought, wow. So a bunch of my friends and I, who were in the school band, just took the stuff to our garage and started started playing. Uh, we didn't just play Beatles. We played like The Ventures and Dave Clark Five. And uh, what else? Well, we, we <laughs> in my first band, which is called The Lost Chords, we actually had a trumpeter and a trombone in the band, too. So we could play uh, Herb Alford and the Tijuana Brass songs. It was really fun. Uh, we, we never really accomplished much other than having fun, but, you know, fun is the best thing to have anyway. So... Yeah, uh, so, like the Beatles song. Um, So, did you ever have bands that had gigs in high school? We had one gig with the Lost Chords, and that was uh, at the Presbyterian Church Youth Fellowship Hall. (laughs) Can you imagine a straighter gig than that? And uh, it was really fun. The kids went nuts, and we had a great time. But mostly we just rehearsed in, in either my garage or my friend's basement or, you know, a lot of rehearsing. <laughs> so you go to RISD. At all times, maybe in history, being a fine artist is a challenging career. Did that occur to you? Yes, it did. One thing they, they tell you when you, you go to art school is, you know, there's no guarantees some people say you can't even teach art. <laughs> and uh, Well, the fact is that some people can and some people can't. But um, RISD was not, RISD didn't have any like uh, program that you could enroll to get a job after, after graduation. It was, uh, you're on your own now. Good luck. <laughs> This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, but you played in bands in high school. It seems based on the book that very soon after your arrival at RISD, you were interesting, interested in forming a band. Yes, my second year, I, first year I didn't play any drums at all, any music except, you know, on my record player. But um, I was really missing it. And um, so I asked my dad if he would... Uh, drive me up to Rhode Island from Pittsburgh with my drum kit. And he said, yes, sure. So we brought the drum kit up, and, and the first band I, I joined was, in fact, a soul band. I mean, a real soul band and uh, called The Brotherhood. They were all from Boston, from Roxbury, Boston. But one of them went to RISD, the trumpet player, and so he asked me, would I, would I play with them? And, and uh, we ended up, again, rehearsing a lot. And I, I, I must admit, I was the weak link in that band because the rest of the guys were Berkeley School of Music guys. You know? But eventually I got it. And um, I loved soul music. The challenge for me was the slower tempos. You know, the, the slow tempos are for me, more difficult than any, any fast tempo. 
so it took me a while to to get it together with the Brotherhood. We 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 did one show, which was the RISD Spring Dance, in the what they called the Refectory, and it was very cel- a great celebration, very celebratory, and the band sounded good, and uh, and that was it. <laughs> that was the last gig with them. So you have your drum kit. You're in Providence. What's the next step? Well, the next step, I was just playing by myself a lot with records. And uh, Tina, Tina Weymouth, was kind enough to uh, let me keep my my drums uh, or to invite me to keep my drums at her place, which was she was living in a little carriage house near Brown University. And it was right by the tennis courts. So uh, nobody complained about the noise. And um, I practiced. I would play along with uh, the latest Marvin Gaye record or the latest Brian Ferry record or the latest, you know, Goat's Head Soup by the Rolling Stones or whatever. And I I would try to keep in shape doing that. But uh, eventually one day a guy came to me, a friend said, Chris, I'm making this film. He was a film student. I'm making a film about my girlfriend getting run over by a car. And I need some really cacophonous music. Do you think you could help me with that? And I said, sure. I'd be happy to. And uh, uh, I said, bring your, bring your uh, Nagra tape recorder over to Tina's carriage house and we'll do it. And he said, okay, I'm going to bring another guy, too, who plays guitar, a friend of mine who plays guitar. I said, great. So he brings this guy over with his tape recorder, and he says, uh, Chris, this is David Byrne. And um, so David and I sat down together, and, and Mark's instructions were, I want this rising cacophony, you know, crescendo, crescendo, and then diminuendo. So <laughs> we said, okay, we can do that. And I think we got it in the first take. And I had been, I had this dream about starting an, another band at RISD since the Brotherhood had kind of gone kaput. And uh, I had imagined, you know, David Bowie had just come out and uh, Lou Reed had, had this hit with Walk on the Wild Side and, and, there was a lot of rejuvenated interest in the the Velvet Underground by by art students I knew. I thought, hmm, we should start a sort of Velvet Undergroundish band. And I asked, uh, I had this dream that we could have a band that would entertain our friends. You know, no no uh, higher aspirations than that. Really, we weren't thinking about records or anything. And uh, I said to David, I'm thinking about starting a band. Would you like to be part of that? And he said, yeah, I think so. (laughs) And uh, so we started a band called The Artistics. And uh, we had loads of fun. And did you have any gigs? We did. (laughs) Our biggest gig was the uh, Rhode Island School of Design Valentine's Day Ball, and we played that. And uh, 
that was very exciting for us. We we played um, the the that's. They had lowered the drinking age to 18, so we had a bar at RISD called the Tap Room. And we played in the Tap Room. We played a couple private parties. And uh, just before we graduated, we played outside across from the RISD Museum on Benefit Street in this little park on a nice afternoon in May. And that was our final show. And who was in the band at that point? Uh, it was uh, David, myself, a, a friend of mine from Kentucky named David Anderson on guitar. He's a painter now. And Hank Staler on bass. Hank was running PS1 in New York um, a while back, which is an art museum. I'm not sure what he's doing now. but uh, and we And we would have... Uh, guest appearances by uh, one, one, one of our friends named Tim Beale was a sax player. He would sit in, sit in from time to time. And we also had <laughs> our friends Mark and Naomi, who they're, um, they were a couple, and their song was My Baby Must Be a Magician. So, so we would, we would uh, play My Baby Must Be a Magician, and Mark and Naomi would sing it duet style. We we had a we had a ball, <laughs> and how often would you rehearse? Oh, uh, a couple three times a week. So you were taking it seriously. Let's uh, stay at RISD for a second. How did you meet Tina? I met Tina. Uh, she came, well, she came riding down the street. I was sitting on the grass in this little park, and I, I saw this beautiful girl coming my way on a bicycle a yellow bicycle, uh, you know, old three-speed style. And uh, she she rode past. She didn't look at me or anything, didn't notice me. But I was sitting with a, a, a male model at the school, like an artist model named Charlie. And Charlie said, I said, whoa, Charlie, did you see her? Wow. And Charlie said, that's my friend, Martina. Charlie called everybody his friend, you know. And uh, so uh, I thought, I got to meet her. And um, the next day, I had a figure painting class. It was, it was the beginning of the school year. I had a figure painting class uh, taught by a guy named Richard Merkin, who um, <clears throat> you may know his work from The New Yorker or... or other places. He was actually on the cover, one of the heads on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Right, with right, right. With a mustache right, right. and a hat. Right. Because he was friends with Peter Blake, good friends with Peter Blake. So anyway, he, um, Richard Merkin was teaching, and uh, it was the, the first class of the year, and I looked over, and there in the corner was Tina Weymouth setting up her easel. And uh, so that's where I met her. Now, how how deep into your career at RISD? This was what year? This is my second year. Okay. She, tran she transferred in from Barnard. So she was a new kid. Okay. Now, one thing that comes up in the book frequently is other men hitting on Tina. Okay. <laughs> a, how did that make you feel? And B, uh, 
Why do you think, or what's your insight into Tina that she stayed with you? I mean, obviously, there are a lot of stories the opposite. If nothing else, Michelle Phillips and the Mamas and Papas. Oh, poor Michelle. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, I was always okay with these guys who who I could tell they were coming on to Tina because uh, somehow I felt secure in my relationship with her. Secure enough that I hit, I didn't have to be jealous. I think there might have been one or two times be- before we got married where I felt a little jealous of some guy or another. But once we were married, which was in 1977, I uh, I, I felt confident that uh, I didn't have to worry about such things. Okay, you graduate from RISD. What year is that, 73? 74. 74. Then what's the plan? Then the plan is uh, I went home. I I painted a mural. The plan was to move to New York, but I knew I had to have a little money in my pocket to move to New York. So I went home to Pittsburgh and... uh, through my father's connections, I got a, a, a job painting a mural in a hospital, the Ioneer Hospital of Pittsburgh. And uh, the mu- mural had already been designed by some other guy, and I was supposed to make, blow it up and make it huge, which I did. And it took a long time up on a scaffolding, you know, <laughs> on a stairway. But, but, um, uh, I got, I think, $2,500. Wow, that's a lot of money in 74. Yeah, and so uh, I had enough. Then I thought, okay, I can move to New York now, which, was, which I did in, in uh, late September. and uh, Or maybe it was early October. It was early October. And, um, well, uh, David had agreed to move to New York. and he, In fact, he moved there before I did. And uh, Tina had agreed, and the three of us uh, got a loft together on Christie Street, which which I found after much searching around New York. And uh, uh, Tina's brother, who's an architect, said, Chris, don't bother about the Village Voice. Don't look in there. Uh, uh, look at the industrial section of the New York Times on Sunday. So I said, Okay. And he was right. That's where you found the, the, the good lofts, you know, that nobody lived in yet. And we got a nice one on Christie Street, just below Houston, on what is called the Lower East Side. And it was three blocks from CBGB's, maybe three and a half. Uh, as my friend who lived across the street from CBGB said, Chris... There's something going on over at this club across the street. You got to check it out. And I went in there and I checked it out and there was like nothing happening at all. It was in the middle of the week. But there was a, a, a like four guys playing pool in the back. And I went back there and they, they were Latino guys. And uh, one of them was wearing like a shark skin suit and a tie and had a real sharp crew cut I thought hmm so I asked him you know what's going on is there going to be any music tonight he said 
in a very heavy Mexican accent, no man, not tonight, but you come back on the weekend, the Ramones will be here. And I thought, oh, a Mexican band, how interesting. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, I came back on the weekend, the Ramones were there, and I, I soon found out they were not a Mexican band. <laughs> Well, what else would you like to know? Well, no, what I guess what I'm asking is when you, David, and Tina moved to New York, is your plan to be a painter or a rock and roll musician? Well, we, we, I, David and I hoped to be rock and roll musicians. And uh, because we felt like, you know, we're, we're young, we can do this while we're young. If, it, if we don't succeed, we can. We can be painters or, you know, whatever, conceptual artists, whatever we want to be, and we'll still be considered young painters at age 40 or whatever. Um, we, we kept in touch with the art world. We were, we were very, you know, closely knit with the art world. And, uh, in fact, a lot of people that came to CBGBs to hear us and the other bands play were artists of various types, you know, um, People in the visual arts, people in the performing arts. You know, Philip, Gla Philip Glass would come to see us, you know. And at that <laughs> point in time, he kind of already was Philip Glass, right? Yes. Well, it was early on, but he, he already had a, uh, a very high reputation downtown. Yeah. So what is everybody doing to stay alive? Um, I had a, a, a day, we all had day jobs. Mine was, uh, I was a, a stock boy and shipper for, for design research, which we sold fancy European furniture and housewares. And uh, it was really fun because the, the store was full of all these beautiful shop girls, you know, uh, sales girls. And uh, we also sold Marameco clothing from Sweden. So they all wore those striped Marameco T-shirts. And uh, there were a couple of poets that worked with me down in the basement where we would, we, we would unload things off of trucks. And then after they got sold, we put them back on the trucks. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a good, jo good day job. Nice people. And what did, and uh, we, what did David do? David, David, a friend of ours, uh, had resigned. A friend of ours got a job at the at the Museum of Modern Art, and he left his job uh, at an ad agency, also on Fifty Seventh Street. We all worked on Fifty Seventh Street, which is so funny. But uh, so David would help make ads for people like Prince Machabelli and um, Sergio Valenti and. Things like that back in the 70s. And Tina was working at Henry Bendel, which was a very exclusive, only recently went out of business because of Trump's, you know, uh, screwing up Fifth Avenue and they lost all their business. Okay. Was David actually designing ads? No, he was operating a stat machine, <laughs> you know. Photogra photographing parts of the ads and putting them together. So how does Tina become a member of the band? I had actually asked Tina to become a member of the band when we had the artistics, when we were forming it. 
And she said, oh, no, no, no. That's a guy's thing. Uh, I'll, I'll be very, I'll support you uh, in, in your efforts, but I, I don't want to. No, she, she just felt like it was a bad idea. And, um, but I kept after her because I felt like the, th- the band we were going to, I was forming with David was going to be, be a very different type of band in, in terms of appearance and also sound. And we weren't going to be like copying the Who or the Rolling Stones or even the Velvet Underground, really. Uh, we were going to be uh, more unusual uh, than, than what people might have anticipated, you know? We were trying to be different and interesting. And I knew that Tina shared a uh, similar aesthetic artistically, that she she got what we were trying to do even before she, you know, started playing with us. And uh, also, I knew that she had a fantastic sense of rhythm from dancing with her and just, you know, embracing her. And, you know, when the records come on, when our favorite songs come on, we would dance, you know. And I, I, I knew that she could, you know, really feel the rhythm. So... I, I kept asking her, and I kept asking her, and she kept saying, "No, no, no, not a good idea. It's a, it's a boys' club." It, but then one day, she walked into the loft with a Fender Precision bass that she'd been putting down like five dollars a week on for months, evidently, and uh, one of the happiest days of my life. Well, I think she may have been the progenitor of female musician bass players in terms of rock bands. I don't remember anybody playing that role uh, before that. I'm sure people emailed me. Well, there was uh, Susie Quattro was was of um, course. Well, uh, I had a couple of Susie Quattro records, and on one of them, she even kind of looks like Tina. And I said, "Tina, look at this," <laughs> and. Uh, but uh, and of course, there's a great Carol Kay, who, who Tina, a session bass player, who Tina admires greatly. Um, and I'm sure there were plenty others, but yeah, Tina was one of the first down in uh, Lower Manhattan to do it. Okay, now Tina is in the act when you finally play CBGBs. Yes, yes. Our first gig was in, in May of 1975. And how did you get that gig? I walked in and I asked Hilly Crystal, the owner, uh, I have this band and I, we'd like to audition. And he said, what kind of music you play? And I said, well, we play in a style of our own. And he chuckled like, <laughs> he'd heard that one before, I think. And uh, he said, okay. Uh, you know, he had a very basso voice he said okay uh i suppose i could put you on in front of the ramones and i said all right we'll we'll take it and that was our audition night um which was i think three days later so we had to think of a name we didn't even have a name yet so we had to think of a name and our our our, uh, one of our friends from risd was visiting us at the time he uh, he now has a job at the Art Institute of Chicago. But anyway, he said, 
he 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 said I I've been, I was reading TV Guide and they have a glossary of television technical terms and one of the terms is talking head. It means the 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 most boring but also the most informative format of broadcasting. So we thought to ourselves, talking heads, talking heads. That sounds good. And uh, we could relate to it because it didn't connote any particular type of music like heavy metal or country or, you know, hard rock or disco. Talking heads, it could be anything. So uh, we went with that name. And we put, Tina and I had little T-shirts made that said Talking Heads on it. And we walked through uh, Washington Square Park with it, with it on and people would say, are you guys in a band? Things like that. And so we thought, hmm, I think this Talking Heads name might work out. And, and that particular shirt of Tina's is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which... Uh, is kind of sweet. <laughs> now, if you read the book, you find out essentially you met everybody. But in that scene at CBGB, of course, the guys from television, people from Blondie, etc. Did you have the feeling that this was, in retrospect, of course, it was really percolating a big scene and almost all of those acts got record deals, some went on to great success. Did you have that vibe when you were a member of it? Yes, I had. I had. The impression that it was, uh, you know, it started off really small. And even then with uh, television, Patti Smith, Blondie, the Ramones, ourselves, band called the, the Mumps, even, even when there were only 25, 30 people in the audience on a given night, I had the idea, I had the feeling that something, um, something was getting really cool and good and and that uh, CBGB's was going to be like an incubator for a scene where bands could sort of uh, play their play their original songs and maybe maybe they would n- not even get through the song without making a big mistake or something but the audience was so small that not that many people would notice and there was no internet so you you could make a mistake. You could have a very awkward performance and uh, still come back and do it again the following week. And so it was that kind of scene. And uh, everybody was uh, kind of, you know, just learning how to do this, how to be a performer. Patty Smith was a pretty good performer right from the get-go because she had been doing poetry readings and things, and she had she had a lot of charisma. Um, but as this as more and more people came, and the bands got better and better, and all of a sudden you had people from like Japan and London and Hamburg, Germany, and people coming up from Atlanta and. It just started to be uh, a very exciting scene, and, and there would be suddenly there would be lines outside to get in, and um, yeah, I felt like uh, very fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time. 
Now, needless to say, as you referenced earlier, Talking Heads has a unique sound. Did it audience or did it resonate with the audience? Did you generate fans from the beginning? Uh, some people didn't get it. I think some people still don't get it. <laughs> but, you know, the, the kings of downtown New York rock at that time were the New York Dolls and the various spinoffs of the New York Dolls. And uh, we liked them. They were real cool and everything. But we we certainly weren't going to be parading around in platform shoes and, like, purple trousers and stuff. So um, there were some people that we were so uh, contrary to the New York Dolls aesthetic that they didn't really get us at first. But then, eventually, even, even some of the... Uh, People who really didn't get us came around. Okay. So how did Jerry get in the band? Well, you know, Jerry Harrison was in the Modern Lovers, which was a band that we greatly admired and uh, played their record a lot. Their record was produced. It was actually a demo produced by John Cale that was later released as an album. Uh, and we had been listening to that. And I went home to Pittsburgh one time and, one of my mother's friends said, you know, Chris, my nephew is in a band in Boston, and uh, they're really good. And I said, who are they? What's the name of the band? She said, oh, the Modern Lovers. Now, I knew that the Modern Lovers had broken up. Evidently, she didn't know it yet. But I said, oh, what's your nephew's name? And she said, Ernie Brooks. I said, oh, the bass player. She said, yeah. And she, uh, she gave me Ernie's contacts. So I had Ernie's contacts and, and um, went, went back to New York from Pittsburgh. And I, uh, like the next day or a couple days later, I was in a restaurant owned by Mickey Ruskin, who, who founded Max's Kansas City. But this, this was called The Local. And uh, one of the cooks was Julian Schnabel. But, you know, <laughs> That's the, unbelievable. The I saw that in the book. Yeah, and uh, so uh, they, they were famous for their hamburgers and their red wine. So we were having some a hamburger and a red wine, and Tina and David and I, and I, I looked across the room, and who should I see but Ernie Brooks? I recognized him by his big head of curly hair that he had on the album cover. So I walked over. And I said, hey, Ernie, I was just talking to your aunt in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, the Scheuers, Liz, Liz Scheuer. I said, yeah, exactly. And she's a friend of my mother's. And um, she said that I, I should get in touch with you. So here I am. And, and he said, well, what's happening? What are you guys doing? And, and and I said, well, you know, actually, we're looking for a, a third member of the band, some, somebody who can help us, you know, fill out the sound and make the songs more beautiful. And um, he said, well, uh, who, what, what instrument are you looking for? I said, keyboards, may, maybe keyboards and guitar. And he said, have you, have you thought of Jerry Harrison? And I said, Wow, I would love to get in touch with Jerry Harrison. And Ernie gave me his number. So I called up Jerry. And Jerry said, well, guess what? Um, he said, this is very interesting, but guess what? I just enrolled in a master's program for architecture here at Harvard. 
And, uh, and besides that, the breakup of the modern lovers was a very difficult experience for me. So I'm, I'm not going to rush into anything, but I'd be interested to hear you play. So I said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll plan a gig up in, up in Boston and uh, you can come hear us play, which we did. And one thing led to another. And when we, when we finally had a recording contract, Jerry said, okay, I'd like to join the band. He had played with us a few times before that, you know, so we knew that it, it worked well. Uh, you know, you mentioned that he's a single child in the book, and he's at Harvard. How difficult was it for him to drop out? Um, you know, I, I never asked Jerry how difficult it was, but he did. He did that. <laughs> I think he did. I think he did one semester, or maybe even did a full year. He might have done a full year. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So uh, how do you get a record deal? How did we? Uh, we had people approaching us, offering us record deals. And, uh, you know, I can think of three 
off the top of my head. And uh, one of them was Seymour Stein of Sire Records. And uh, we had made a couple demos, and we we listened to, back to these demos, and we thought, uh, we're not ready yet. This is, uh, you know, we can rock CBGBs, but we're not going to, like, rock the Billboard charts sounding like we do now. And... Um, uh, we we knew that if if we put out a record too soon and and it wasn't up to, you know, it wasn't happening, then we might not get a chance to do do one. We might not get another chance. So uh, we were very careful. Seymour offered us this deal, and we made him wait for a year and a half, eighteen months. <laughs> And he, poor guy, he was so nervous that some other record company was going to snatch us up in the meantime. But, but we knew, we had a feeling about Seymour and his, and his company, Sire, that they were independent, that they were uh, in New York, that they, their offices were on a town, in a townhouse on West 74th Street. And we could according to Seymour any anyway, we could go there anytime we wanted and talk to him. So we thought, hmm, that sounds a lot better than some guy in, uh, you know, L.A. or uh, at the top of a skyscraper in New York who, who you know, we can't even get in to see him. Uh, and uh, so we decided to go with Seymour. We, we asked Danny Fields, who was managing the Ramones, uh, we said, Danny, what's your experience? The, the, the Ramones were on Sire. And Dan, Danny, what's your experience with uh, Sire Records? And he said, well, Chris, in a nutshell, Seymour's always done right by us. And that was like all I needed to know. He, he, Danny also said, you know, no record company is perfect. With any record company, you need somebody to tell them what to do. <laughs> but, um, uh, but Seymour has always done right by us. So, so we signed a deal with Seymour. And uh, I'm really glad we did because it worked out great. Okay, so you make the first record. Needless to say, the first record sounds very different from what came thereafter. Talking Head 77, were you happy with the result at the time? Yeah, I was. I, 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 um, I'm still happy with the result. It's, it's a very sweet um, and uh, rich-sounding album. I, I, I think... My way of thinking about it is it was a great start, a great beginning. And I, I, when I listen to it today, if I listen to a song like Don't Worry About the Government or Psycho Killer or Pulled Up, I, I, I think, wow, we were, we were really something. <laughs> okay, so the first album comes out. Do you have a feeling there's momentum? I, uh, we, we had momentum in... in uh, Sort of like the big cities, but we didn't we didn't have any worldwide momentum, and I I remember looking at the charts and thinking, uh, well, we're not really uh, doing that great, but the the fact is that uh, that we were um, we were making a big impression and uh, establishing a reputation for being 
artists, you know, um, and uh, we 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 um, we 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 had uh, the sort of like the best of best world we could possibly have. We we had some commercial success, not a huge amount, but enough that we could make another record. We had artistic success, which was validated, you know, by The Voice and The New York Times and by our friends. And we also had, uh, well, we had enough financial success that we could give up our day jobs. <laughs> and that's a very significant thing. Staying with Staying with business, traditionally, the drummer is the business guy in the group. Was that the case with you in Talking Heads? You know, that's what Gary Kerfer said to me. It's always the drummer who runs the band. Well, um, I think all of us had a pretty good business sense, but but maybe I was the, the person who uh, who uh, was, was, was comfortable uh, talking to people about it. But it got to the point after not very long that, that, that I realized you can't manage your own band. You have to have somebody else do it for you. Okay. Now, the first record makes an impression. Second record is a whole new thing. You work with Eno. You do a cover of Take Me to the River. Tell us the genesis and the story of making that record. Well, um, we were on a big tour of Europe with, and, and the UK with the Ramones. And when we, when we came to London, Eno came to see us. And we, we met with him. We had a nice lunch with him. And then we went to his home. And we talked about, you know, music, basically. And uh, one thing led to another. And we decided Eno would be a good producer for us. And, and Eno was interested in doing it. And, and uh, so that's how, that, that's how we got involved with Eno. And at the time, though, he hadn't really worked with anybody significant. He'd been in uh, uh, Roxy Music, and he'd done his own solo albums, correct? Yes. Yes, he had also done, uh, just around the time, before, right before we worked with him, he was working with David Bowie on the... On Low. The Low Trilogy, and also uh, with Devo. He produced the first Devo album which he did in Germany. And um, so, so, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe the record companies weren't thrilled that we were working with Devo instead of like, you know, Roy Thomas Baker or somebody like that. But, but he was right up our alley. He was our kind of artist. And we, we had his records, we collected his records, we admired his work. And so uh, he agreed to do it. Now, on that second album, More Songs About Buildings and Food, we had already been performing all those songs live. And uh, some of them we had been performing for years live, but they didn't make it onto the first record. So, And we had been touring like crazy. So uh, when we got to the studio at Compass Point in the Bahamas, which was delightful, all Eno had to do was like set up the mics and then he could treat the various instru instruments, mostly the drums, but sometimes other instruments 
with this little briefcase synthesizer he had. And um, by treating, I mean putting effects and delays and things like that on the instruments. And that was his main contribution. But he also helped, like like when, when we came to Take Me to the River, which we'd been playing kind of up-tempo, like Al Green's version is quite up-tempo. But uh, Eno said, you should slow this down. You should play this as slow as you possibly can without making a mistake. <laughs> and so we thought, okay, we'll try that. And we did it. And it was super sexy that way. And uh, so that, that was, um, uh, of course, that became a hit. And it was our first hit. And uh, the, the, whole ex- the whole experience down at Compass Point was just super cool and everything went smooth and uh, we had a wonderful time. Well, it's so interesting in the book you talk about Take Me to the River that ultimately there's sound where you feel like it's underwater, which is that you describe that. I've always felt that, you know, with the uh-huh. guitar, you know, during the solo part. Okay, the record becomes a hit. How does that change you and the band? Well, um, I don't know that it really changed us. It just made a, we were able to get paid better by uh, nightclubs because we had a, a song that was on the radio. So we could get, you know, more money. It wasn't a whole lot more and it wasn't a whole lot of money, but it was like better than we had been doing. And who was booking, who was booking all those tours? Uh, in those days, it was a, a, a guy named Stu Weintraub at William Morris. And uh, Stu was uh, was quite a character, but, but um, you know, we Gary really. I I think Gary Kerfurst, who of course was your manager, he was our manager, and I think he pretty much directed Stu. Now, Stu, we're going to play here, here, and here. You get on the phone and book it. And um, we we played everything from uh, college campuses, universities to pizza parlors and uh, uh, supermarkets that, that were out of business and were empty. Uh, we, we played all kinds of crazy venues, which, which, um, which uh, later we were followed by Blondie and by Elvis Costello and by The Clash because there was no circuit for, for bands like us. We, were, we, were, we weren't very big you know, we weren't like foreigner or something. So a lot of promoters weren't interested. So we had to find these young indie guys to to promote our shows. Sometimes we promoted them ourselves. Really? Even when <laughs> yeah. you'd had the second album, et cetera? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Third album, of course, Fear of Music. And of course, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around. It brings you to a higher level. But after the third record is when you start to get wind of the fact that maybe David Byrne is going to go on his own tack. Yeah. I, 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 what I found out was that David all along had, would prefer to be a solo artist. Um, the group was just something that he, uh, I mean, he was a real part of the group. We were, we were really collaborators and we were friends and we were, 
you know, we lived together in the same loft. And um, we really, 90% of the time we agreed on things, you know. We didn't agree on every single thing, but we, but now, Bob, I, I have to be very careful because I don't want to sound like the whiny drummer <laughs> who's who's embittered by the famous lead singer because that's not the case. I'm not embittered, and I have great respect for David and his talents, which are immense. But. I, I I still think that he had his eyes on a solo career from almost day two, maybe not day one, day two, and uh, you know, some people are like. Let's jump forward when he ultimately yeah. does go solo, and you form Tom Top Club. You have yeah. a hit, and up until his recent. Uh, uh, mega concert dancing experience. He has not had. He's had a lot of ink, but he hasn't had any huge success. How do you feel? How do you feel about that? Well, um, all I can say is our first Tom Tom Club album was like magic to me. Uh, Chris Blackwell gave it. Now, one thing Seymour did, which which I can you know, make a little dig about was he offered David a solo deal because David wanted to do a solo record. So then Jerry said, oh, if David's going to do a solo record, I'm going to do a solo record. So he offered Jerry a solo record. And then Tina and I were like, well, what are we going to do? And uh, Gary Kerfers went to went to Seymour and said, what can you do for a uh, record deal for Chris and Tina? And he said, I can't afford three Talking Heads solo albums. And so he offered us nothing. And um, <laughs> Chris Blackwell, Chris Blackwell of Island Records, who, who knows the value of a good rhythm section, said, you know what, Gary? I'd love to do a single with Chris and Tina. Have them come on down. He already knew us from our recordings at, at uh, Compass Point. And he said, have them come on down, cut a single. If I like it, they can do a whole album. So we went down to Compass Point, and we we made a record called Wordy Rapping Hood. And uh, he heard that, and he said, okay, I want you to make a whole album, but first we're going to release this one as a single. And uh, it, w it went to, well... It went top 10 in about 20 different countries in Europe and, and Latin America. And, you know, it, then we had Genius of Love, and Genius of Love was a huge hit in America. So, so big that, um, well, it, it continues to be sampled by various hip-hop artists and R&B artists. And uh, it, it was... A, uh, it was like magic. It was a great, great success for us. And it, it gave Tina and I, you know, I think people realized, oh, Tina and I aren't just like David's little friends. <laughs> they actually have ideas of their own. And uh, and I think um, I think people realized that Talking Heads was 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 actually more of a shared experience. The 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 art of talking heads was more of a shared experience than 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 
one particular guy's uh, ideas. Okay, but throughout the book, certainly you say at some point that you believe David is on the spectrum, but he does do some very interesting things. You said he dropped out of RISD after one year. He left his significant other wife uh, after being inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame literally that night. But the most uh, interesting thing on a business level is you agree that you would split songwriting credit along with Eno. Tell us about the songwriting credit and who really wrote those songs. Well, the songs were created by the five people who were in the studio working, mostly mostly created by uh, Tina, Jerry, David, and myself from uh, improvisations in the studio. And then we would, and sometimes Brian would be playing something in the control room while we were out in the studio. But more often than than not, he was listening. And and he would add things later. Uh, But uh, the original basic tracks that all those songs on Remain in Light come from were were improvised by the four musicians in the studio. Then we took the... uh, We arranged... Uh, Brian and the engineer mainly arranged the different jam sessions that we did so that they would uh, evolve into different parts of a song, like an A section, a B section, a C section. And then we would do some rough mixes of those, at which point David was expected to write lyrics because at, at a certain point, Actually, pretty early on, he said, I'm, I, I want to be the one who writes the lyrics. I don't want to sing anyone else's lyrics. So we're like, okay, cool. And uh, he, uh, we, we all knew after those Compass Point sessions on Remain in Light that, that we had something very extraordinary. And he said, you know, this is so extraordinary. I can't just write like something off the top of my head. I got to live with these tracks for a little while. And uh, then I'll be able to write something. So we said, great. We understood that completely. And I think he took, I think he rented a car and drove around the country listening to cassettes and uh, of the basic tracks and also listening to the radio with evangelical preachers and whatnot on the various regional radio stations. And he came back with some great lyrics and at that point, Eno helped arrange some of the background vocals and the uh, and actually, I think he he wrote, for example, uh, uh, the the melody to "Letting the Days Go By," you know, the chorus of of uh, "Once in a Lifetime," and he he made major contributions. Long story short, when when this great album was finally finished, and uh, we got our advanced copies. Tina and Jerry and I, and we're looking at them. And the agreement had been that it would say music by, in alphabetical order, David Byrne, <laughs> Brian Eno, Chris France, Jerry Harrison, and Tina Weymouth. But instead it said music by David Byrne, Brian Eno, and Talking Heads. Well, I thought David was a member of Talking Heads, but anyway... You, you could see that uh, 
the rest of us were being treated like sidemen all of a sudden, as if we hadn't, hadn't really contributed to the extent that we had. Eh, you know, so we, we had to deal with that. Uh, uh, Brian wanted, Brian wanted the, the uh, front cover to say, remain in light by talking heads and Brian Eno. And we're like, oh, my God, how are we going to how are we going to talk him out of this one? And um, Gary Kerfurst went to Brian. And he said, you know, Brian, there's going to be a nine month promotional tour behind this album. Can you do that tour? And Brian said, oh, no, Gary, I, I, I couldn't possibly do that. You know, I don't tour. And so Gary said, well, then. How can we advertise it as Brian Eno and Talking Heads if you're not there? And, uh, well, that, that ended that problem right there. <laughs> but it, it, despite the credit, in terms, of, in terms of publishing royalties, did you get one-fifth? No. Really? No, I did not. So what was the final split on the payment? You know, I prefer not to get into the, the details because off the top of my head, I don't exactly know what they are. I have a good idea. But, you know, uh, it, you know, it didn't work out the way it was supposed to work out. How about on all the other albums? You know, are you talking about performance royalties? or, or I'm talking uh, about publishing royalties. Publishing royalties. Well, um, I'm afraid David gets, gets the lion's share of most of that. But you do get some. Yes. Now, yes, I do. It's like uh, it's almost like Godfather 3. It looks like David's out of the band, and then you and Tina always seem to find a way to get him back in. Yeah. We, we, well, you know, you have to use psychology. And uh, we, learned, we learned that if you make David think something's his idea, it might get done. <laughs> and uh, so... <laughs> what can I say? I think every rock band who's who's been around for a while has many twists and turns and ups and downs, and and we had our share too. Okay, uh, after true stories, do you say to yourself, and then naked, do you say to yourself, this is ultimately done, or do you always have a hope that well, we'll do it one more time? I always had a hope that we'd do it one more time. Yes. And has it ever come close? I wish I could say yes, but I don't think so. No, uh, a couple a couple of times I got my hopes up, but uh, lately I, I uh, I'm I'm kind of resigned to the fact that it's not going to happen. Um, although Talking Heads has a great career on Broadway now, we, there's some great Talking Head shows <laughs> songs being performed on Broadway. So, uh, have you seen uh, David's extravaganza in person? I I have not. I confess, I have not. I had I been invited to the show, I probably w- would have been happy to go, but n- no invitation was extended, and and I didn't want to just drop in. <laughs> and uh, how uh, how often, or when was the last time you actually spoke face to face with David? Uh, I I spoke face to face with David. For the last time in 2003. So it's been a good long while. We, we, co- we communicate by email, uh, mostly about, you know, uh, what songs can be used in what movies and what, you know, 
When was the last time you had an email from him? Oh, probably uh, probably a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so after Talking Heads is behind, Tom Tom Club continues to go, but also you and Tina start producing records. Yeah. How does that happen? Well, um, it kind of... Uh, we hadn't really planned on being producers or anything, but our, our good friend Alex Sadkin, who was an extraordinary engineer and producer for Bob Marley and uh, Third World, and he ended up uh, producing uh, or engineering and mixing things like I Want to Know What Love Is for Foreigner, you know, big hits. He was scheduled. He had worked with Bob Marley, and he was scheduled to uh, produce Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers, Bob Marley's kids. And um, he was down in Nassau at Compass Point working with some band. When tragically, he was thrown from an open air jeep. Uh, they had an accident. He was thrown, hit his head, and never came to. So suddenly, Virgin America, which is a brand new company, uh, they needed producers for Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. And Tina's younger brother, Larique Weymouth, was was a young A and R man there. And he said to uh, Nancy Jeffries, and Nancy Jeffries was uh, in charge of the Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers project. He said. Uh, Nancy, have you have you thought about using Chris and Tina? Because you know they they love reggae. They they know a lot about you know island culture and stuff. Maybe they would be good. So we got a call from Nancy Jeffries, and she said, "Would you be interested in doing this?" And we said, "Yeah, we would be interested because Talking Heads wasn't touring at the time or anything." And um. Uh, we went down to Jamaica to meet Ziggy. Uh, no, first we, we met his mother, Rita Marley, in a sushi bar in New York. And she said, she said okay, you guys seem cool to me. And uh, she, she remembered meeting us before somewhere. And uh, she liked our Tom Tom Club music, Genius of Love. She loved that. And um, so... Uh, she said, you've got to come down to Jamaica and meet Ziggy. So we met Ziggy, and uh, we flew down there. And uh, Ziggy said, yeah, man, you can do it. So uh, we started working with Ziggy. The first day, he said to me, this was at Sigma Sound in New York. Because we, we thought if we, if we pr produce the record in Jamaica, things might get kind of out of control. We, we should have it here in New York, and, and so we did that. And um, the first day Ziggy came to me, he said, Chris Franz, how come you bring your wife to the studio, man? <laughs> I said, well, Ziggy, first of all, Tina knows more about music than I do. And, and, and second of all, she's going to be a great producer. So uh, just sit back and enjoy it. And... Uh, in fact, uh, in fact, it, it went very well. That record did great. It was called Conscious Party. Uh, 
another new signing to Virgin America at that time was Keith Richards. So Keith Richards came in and played on a song called Lee and Molly, which is about a interracial relationship. And he was really cool. And uh, we had um, Hugh Masakela come in and arrange background vocals for a, a group of um, uh, Zulu women, young Zulu women who were in town doing a musical called Serafina. And uh, Baba Ola Tunji dropped in. Um, a whole lot of Jamaican uh, dance hall artists stopped by to see what was happening. And the record sold like millions. So it, w- it was a wonderful experience. Okay, so needless to say, Talking Heads doesn't make another record. You have success with Tom Tom Club. So for the last 25 years, how much of that was working? How much of that was rest and relaxation? My last 25 years? Well, I've uh, I've taken plenty of time off. I assure you. I we we like to go sailing. I know you like to ski. When when our kids were younger, we spent a lot of time at Crested Butte. Oh, great! And loved it there, and and of course also in New England. Um, but as you know, out west is kind of more fun, especially Absolutely. in the middle of winter. Uh, we uh, spent a lot of time sailing because we love to sail. But we've also done several Tom Tom Club albums. Uh, and we've uh, done plenty of Tom Tom Club tours, sometimes with a, a package, sometimes just on oursel- by ourselves. The last time we, we played was, I think, six years ago. You know, nobody's breaking down our door for a new Tom Tom Club album, but we're okay with that because we're we've already done some good stuff, and um, uh, I, I we're more active in our community here in Fairfield, Connecticut, than we used to be, and we uh, we enjoy that. Tina Tina was re- not too long ago. Uh, inducted into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. Wow, that's pretty cool. It's a big deal. And, um, I mean, she's in really good company there. And uh, then I decided I would write a book, and that was a couple years ago. Okay, well, obviously you've had this health blip, but uh, are you sailing into the sunset, or do you, in the back of your mind, is there some artistic project that you still want to cook up? Well, Tina and I have been encouraged by uh, what's happening with electronic music today. Um, I'm not referring to um, the kind of music you, you necessarily hear on uh, pop popular radio. I, I'm I'm referring more to an underground thing. And, uh, and we dig the underground life. So we're, we're thinking that we, we, a few years back, we, we did a, a record um, for a, a label run by the Chicks on Speed. And uh, they were friends of ours. They're from Holland, or it, they were at the time. And, and, and uh, they said, would you do a, we're going to do this album called Girl Monster with, with, with all girl artists. 
well, I know I'm not a girl artist, so we put Tina's name on it. And uh, <laughs> it was uh, it uh, was very well received on an underground in an underground way. And um, so we, we thought, well, maybe we should do like an electronic duo where it's just Tina and myself, some electronic drums, some keyboards, some bass, and some vocals. And, and we don't have to have a big production. It can be very minimalist. We don't have to have uh, a big stage show because maybe we won't even go out on tour or maybe we will and we'll we'll have some you know interesting little stage production that that um doesn't necessarily look like a rock and roll show so we're thinking along those lines i'm also thinking about writing a book about my beagles <laughs> cuz they they travel with us everywhere poppy has has crossed the atlantic 22 no 24 times <laughs> more than most Americans. And are you painting yeah. at all? Well, that, you know, my son, uh, Egan France is, is, uh, is doing the painting for the whole family right now. He's really good. Really great. He's got to show up in Berlin starting next week. I think he's in art Basel. Right. He's ser He's serious. And what about your uh, others, uh, your daughter? Oh, oh, uh, we only have two boys. Oh, the other okay. One, his name is his name is Robin. His nickname. He's an electronic artist, and he's got his own label called Craft Jerks, like craft work, but with a J and a Z. Craft Jerks, and um, <laughs> he's on his like I I don't know how many releases twenty twelve oh, inch God. vinyl, and. Uh, and they sell, you know, they're small batches, but they sell. And he also, uh, well, lately nobody's performing live, but he also performs live as Kid Ginseng, uh, as a DJ. Okay, now, needless to say, the musical landscape is littered with people who are of household names and have no money. In your particular case, are the royalties and the sinks uh, keeping you comfortable? Thank goodness, yes. Uh, we, Tina and I were very fortunate, and we had a few good years, and we socked some away. Good to know. Okay, Chris, I think uh, we've covered the basics. If you want to go into in much more detail, needless to say, learn much more about the New York scene and what it was like to be in that and to be happening in the late 70s and early 80s, certainly read Remain in Love, Chris's memoir, out on July 21st. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 